Hi listener, this is Nina in my capacity as the editor of the show popping in to let you know a couple of things. One, we recorded this on the hottest day of the year and we were all talking from slightly unorthodox locations to try and help ourselves deal with the heat. So there's more background noise than you're used to because of things like open windows and fans. I had some issues with Ali's track as well being very quiet in some places. I've turned it up and tried to mitigate that as much as I can. Please do stick with us though, because Ali's a really good guest and really knowledgeable about Joan Aiken, and it's a really good conversation. You should also know that because the topic of the month is whaling, there will be talk of the killing of animals and the butchering of their bodies. We don't talk about it loads, but you know, just something to be aware of. I hope you enjoy this month's show. Hello and welcome to Even the Crunchable, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we review a picture book and a chapter book. We started off with books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com, catch us on Twitter at TrunchablePod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. So we are coming to you, are we not, Nina, from literally the hottest day that there has been. Yep. Which would love that to be an exaggeration. It is quite literally... The hottest day certainly the UK has had. Matt's in their basement. I've got ice cubes in my pockets. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that laugh you can hear there is our is our guest for for the month. Our theme for this month is soon may the Wellerman come. Yes. It's a sea shanty, and we've called it that because we're reading two books set in the eighteen hundreds on whaling ships off the coast of the USA. Yes, so as an antidote to this weather, we are starting in the Arctic with a book called Nightbirds on Nantucket by Joan Aiken. That's going to be paired with Pegany Poe by Andrea Davis Pinkney and Brian Pinkney. And to bring us the sugar and the tea and the rum, and to help us with this very specific and fascinating theme, we're joined by special guest and fellow books podcaster Ali Baker. Hello! Ali is a lecturer at the University of East London, a researcher in children's fantasy literature, and perhaps most relevant to us... She is the host of Fantasy Book Swap, a fantasy books podcast. Welcome, Ali. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. So this is a, this is first part of a swap, isn't it? So we're, it we're is. having you as a guest now, and then yeah. we're going to be coming over to you for Fantasy Book Swap soon as well. Would you like to tell us why you've chosen Nightbirds on Nantucket? Right. Well, I uh, I took me a really long time to learn to read. Hey, Nina from the editing booth again. As you can hear from that little bit of it that I left in, this part of Ali's recording didn't work out too good and you can't hear her very well, which is a shame because Ali had a really good answer for this question. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarise what Ali said and then drop you back in when her sound gets good enough for you to make out what she's saying. So Ali said that it took her a really long time to learn to read but that when she did, books just exploded for her, and that she had a really good local library with a really great children's librarian called Adrian Jakes, who had a special interest in children's fantasy and children's science fiction. And Adrian was the one to put Joan Aiken into young Ali's hands. Ali started with The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, the first in The Wolves Chronicles, and then skipped straight over book two to this one, book three, Nightbirds on Nantucket. And then Ali goes on to tell us a little bit of biographical detail about Joan Aiken's father. Conrad Aiken. He was a New England uh, and he was a poet. It's, it's possible that he, he knew some history of whaling as well, so she may have felt that connection. There's a, there's an acknowledgement in the beginning of the book as well, isn't there, to um, the Nantucket Museum yes. of whaling. The first chapter of Nightbirds really really sells it. it feels like we're tiptoeing into the synopsis here Matt. let's do it do that 
Okay, great. Who's <laughs> who's synopsizing for us? I am. Okay, also, it's maybe worth mentioning right at this point as well that we're going to Starlight Barking this one. For listeners familiar with our Starlight Barking episode, what this means is that the ending of this book is too crazy to ignore and not to spoil. So we will have a point where we kind of like go up to where beyond this point there be spoilers. And if you yeah. want to go away and read it without the spoilers, then fine. And if you want to hear um, how Starlight Barking-esque the ending of this book is, <laughs> um, then you can stay with us. Yeah, it was written in 1966. So it's... You've had your time. And also, I, I think that actually the whole story is so magnificent that it doesn't really matter um, if you know what the ending is because it's so brilliant. So we open on a whaling ship in the Arctic and there is a little girl on deck in some blankets who has been in a coma for something like 10 months who they picked up out of a shipwreck near London. And now they're in the Arctic, and this. But like the Pacific Arctic, they've been Mm. like round Cape Horn (laughs) and up. Yeah, Um, and she's been kept alive by this sailor boy called Nate, who's been feeding her a mix of whale oil and molasses. Mm. Delicious Mm. and nutritious. Also, as soon as I read this, I thought, who's looking after the other end of the digestive tract here? Yes, I thought that too. That thought had not crossed my mind. (laughs) I I think this about um, Sleeping Beauty as well. I mean... (laughs) It would be a strong opener, to be fair, wouldn't it? It'd be like Nate, who had been sat feeding her molasses... (laughs) Arranging bowls of poo to be thrown over the side of the boat. We'll allow it. (laughs) Um, But in the first chapter, lucky for us, the little girl wakes up and she's called Dido and she's extremely cockney. She's horrified to find that she's been asleep for 10 months. She's like, what the heck? I'm a Londoner. Why am I in the middle of the Arctic? But she's not too thrown by it. To be honest, Dido as a character is incredibly plucky. Mm. It's like her main trait. She's really resilient and really tough. Mm. So she takes off her clothes, which are now too small. She puts on some boys' clothes, some britches. She cuts her hair short. And Nate introduces her to the captain of the ship, who's called Captain Casket. And he says, Captain Casket is a weird one because he's a Quaker? Question mark. Mm-hmm. And because he's obsessed with this pink whale he's seen. Captain Casket is quite happy to see Dido awake and says he's got a job for her. And the job is, she's not the only little girl on the ship, as we had maybe been led to assume. There is another little girl who's locked in her room downstairs below deck um, because her mum died on this voyage and now she's very deathly scared of the sea. Um, And so she's just locked herself in there and she's been living on jam. Um, And Captain Casket can't let on to the crew that he can't get the little girl to come out of the cabin. Yeah, because they'll be mutiny, won't it? If they're like, yeah. you can't even keep your daughter in check. Like... But because Dido's not crew, and because Dido is also a little girl, maybe she can help. Um, his daughter is called Dutiful Penitence. Yes. It's an interesting name, which Dido refuses to use and immediately nicknames her Pen, which is, I think is the right way to go. I love mm. that bit as well. And she's like, cool, so your name, like, I can't say that. I'm not going to do that every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She does pull it out for special occasions, though, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah she occasionally yeah, calls her dutiful, her dutiful P or dutiful yeah. pen, which I rather like. Yeah. yeah. Dido goes downstairs to the captain's cabin, which adjoins dutiful penitence's cabin. And she starts showing off how to be a child. This is my mm. favourite part of the book. Mm. So lovely. Is dutiful penitence has been brought up to do nothing but read the Bible, do her lessons and sew. She's been taught that playing is sort of sinful mm. and unladylike and unbecoming. As Dido says, no wonder she's a bit weird. <laughs> uh, you've brought her up really wrong. And so Dido goes about being as childlike as possible. She gets someone to whittle her a shuttlecock and she bats it all around the cabin. She has a game of moving all the way around the cabin without touching the floor. A game of the floor is life mm-hmm. lava, which clearly has always existed. Um, and like bangs her shins off stuff. So she very skillfully 
draws Dutiful Penitence out. And Dutiful Penitence is so wet to start with. Like, Ooh. really difficult. You know, just very frightened. And so, obviously, she immediately latches on to Dido because Dido Ooh. is this strong character, you know, self-reliant and brave. Um, so they become fast friends. And I think their friendship is one of the loveliest parts of the book. Um, they're going back to Nantucket, which is where many, many, probably most of the whaling ships are mm. setting off from in the USA. Nate is from Nantucket, mm. and Dutiful and her dad lived in Nantucket. So Nantucket's just off the coast of New York, I think, right? It's sort of a bit further up and round. Massachusetts area. And um, Captain Casket had arranged for his sister... Tribulation. Aunt Tribulation. <laughs> Honestly, like these American Christian names. <laughs> They're kind of a, a joke about um, Quaker, Puritan, um, moral, like they're named after moral things. Yeah. yeah. It sort of, sort of feels like a joke and exaggeration, but also reasonably spot on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, because obviously men in the 1800s don't look after their own daughters when mm. their mothers die, he has drafted another female family member to look after dutiful penitence and dutiful penitence is very frightened of her aunt even though she probably only last saw her when she was five and doesn't remember her very well she remembers Mm. that her mother didn't like her her mother said she was a dragon yeah Mm. and dutiful has taken that tartar (laughs) (laughs) penitence that you know has taken that a bit too literally maybe yeah (laughs) so while all this is happening and they're sailing toward nantucket Dido's hanging out with Dutiful Penitence below decks, and then she's also hanging out with the sailors up on the deck, including when they're cutting into the whale and boiling mm. up the fat and doing oh, all this it's really a brilliant scene. cool whaling stuff. Yeah. Um, and she's not squeamish at all. And she's just sort of poking around, and she goes into a room where there's all this sailcloth, and there's a shiny green shoe sticking out mm. of the sailcloth. And she's like, hey, what's this? And she pulls on it, and there's a woman attached there is a yes. woman, there is a woman, and she's like, oh gosh, who is this woman? And this woman, like, stands up and she's wearing a veil and she's like, you did not see me, basically. Don't tell anyone I'm here. And Dido kind of goes, all right then, puts it to the back of her mind, doesn't think about it too much. Although as an astute reader, you're going to remember this. Mm. Um, well, I think she's genuinely scared, It's like, which sort of seems out of character for her. It's like the one moment where she's like... Yeah, okay, cool. I'm not going to tell anyone about this. <laughs> and, and this is a little bit of a hark back to the first two books in the series. Yeah. Because I certainly latched onto the name that the mate was called Mr. Slycarp. Right, I was wondering about that. So if anybody has read The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, they're going to make a link with one of the characters in that book. This is where Joan Aiken is so clever. If you have read the first two books, that name will stick in your mind. But because they were written a long way apart from each other, Joan Aiken couldn't really rely on the fact that every child had read every book in the series. So all of them sort of work on their own. Yeah, I thought so. Like, me and Matt went in completely cold. We haven't read the yeah. first two. And it worked. And while Dido's thinking, who is this person? How did they get on the boat? And who is feeding her? Yeah, someone else knows. So eventually they wind up in Nantucket and the captain basically leaves without saying goodbye to Dutiful Penitence mm. because he doesn't want her to cry, which I think yeah. is awful. Yeah. Really awful. Well, also he's chasing after his whale again, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Captain Casket is in love with a whale. We must acknowledge this truth. <laughs> I mean, this is why they'd ended up near London because he'd yeah. been chasing a whale from like the North Pacific round the Cape, Cape Horn, up to the River up Thames, round the top of John O'Groats, down <laughs> yeah. past the Atlantic. This big figure of eight around the whole world. <laughs> yeah, it's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no wonder his crew maybe don't quite respect him. It's yes. a good thing that they caught a bunch of other whales on the way, because otherwise he's really wasted. I mean, this time. is it. They sort of feel like they do respect him in spite of that. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking, what an amazing captain, because they all seem to be going like, I mean, sure, he's clearly mad, but like, we're still yeah. alive and we're catching loads of whales. So, yeah. 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 And we're going to earn, we're going to earn money. Whatevs. Yeah, and this was like the biggest job for men from Nantucket, you know? 
Like, these are mostly working class men. This is quite a dangerous job. It's also quite well earning and I mm. think quite respected where they come from as well. We can we can have our qualms about like how moral was it to like, kill nearly mm. all the whales surrounding like the American continents, but the men in these ships, you know, were just doing their job. In Nantucket, their mule is waiting, but no people are waiting. So they're like, our guest, <laughs> this donkey's ours. Dido wants to stop at the inn for some food, but Dutiful thinks that that's yeah. really not respectable for two little girls to be doing. So they're out in the rain by themselves. Like, okay, I guess the mule knows the way home, and he does. Um, and finally, they get to um, Dutiful's house, and Aunt Tribulation yeah. is already there. And she's tucked up in bed, mm-hmm. a la Big Bad Wolf. With sunglasses on. With sunglasses <laughs> and the duvet all the way up her nose. And she's like, I'm very unwell. Here's a bunch of jobs for you to do. Um, don't bother me. And so then Dutiful uh, and Dino mm-hmm. are living with Aunt Tribulation. Or is she? Yeah. Should we jump straight into favourite characters? Yeah, all right. So mine's Dutiful Penitence. <laughs> Dutiful penitence. Oh wow, that's 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 a swerve ball. I I was sure it would be Dido. But okay. I really like Dido, but I'm not Dido. <laughs> I'm dutiful mm. penitence. I see. Okay. Okay. Dutiful penitence probably has the biggest arc, character-wise, mm. of everybody in this book. So she starts mm. out scared of everything, and even when she starts getting in trouble with Dido, she keeps telling on Dido. Every yes. time she gets caught, she's like she cannot keep her mouth shut. As soon yeah. as like an adult is being at all threatening, and to be fair, the adults in this book are threatening. She's like, "Oh, it wasn't mm. me. It was Dido. Dido's idea. It wasn't my idea at all. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was Dido," which is really annoying. And Dido's really good about not scolding her for it. Yeah, she every is. time she kind of rolls her eyes, doesn't she? And she's like, "What have we said about passing the blame? Like, stand up for yourself." Like, but she does. But... Like, she really goes on this journey. And she learns to be brave when I feel like it really doesn't come naturally to her. Yeah. So that's why she's my favourite. Nice. Who's yours, Ellie? Um, I'm torn between... Dido is a fabulous character. She really, really is. And what I had forgotten in this book was that she actually cries at the beginning of the book when she realises that she's lost... There's a couple of moments where it just says her eyes blur. Yeah. yeah, she thought she thinks she's lost her friend. But I actually also I really like Nate, and I also particularly like um, the fact that he's got his pet, um, Mr. Jenkins, minor bird, Mr. Jenkins. I love Mr. Jenkins, <laughs> and I also really love Mungo the Mule. As well. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Matt? Who did you go for in the end, then, Ali? Who have you, who have you come Nate. down on? Nate. Nate. Comes... Well, that leaves me free for Dido. Because, mm, yeah. uh, I, I mean, it's never been a rule, Ali, but I always am very sort of stubborn about not trying try not to double up. So I assumed Dido would be yours, Nina. So I was going to jump in with Mr Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> Nate's bird, right? Who yeah. is this, like, like a black-plumed tropical bird that um, has been taught to speak and clearly used to be in a sort of regal house. So I've got a little a little extract here, and everything he says is along these lines. Mr Jenkins, Dido exclaimed, coming to with a jerk. Why, you funny old bird, how did you get here? Is the Sarah casket in port, then? Your grace's wig needs a little powder, Mr <laughs> Jenkins replied. And then we have, look who's come, Dido cried. Mr Jenkins left her shoulder where he had been sitting and launched himself like a loving rocket at Nate's head, crying, Oh, Your Excellency, I am afraid your sword has got caught in the carriage door. (laughs) (laughs) And he joins in with Nate's song, doesn't he? Stow your nine tubs, belay tail feathers. It's rough and it's rugged, it's blowing weather. Make your passage and follow the moon. Dinner is served in the blue saloon. It's just hilarious. Also, well done for committing to the bird voice, because I didn't. Being a primary teacher, you have to do it. No, I'm ashamed at myself for not, but well done. So yeah, honourable mention for Mr Jenkins, but yeah, it's Dido for me. She's so great. I think, as you said before, Nina, she's really resourceful. 
and get up and go and never mind. But as you were saying, Ali, as well, it's like really vulnerable and she'll like let herself cry. But then there's also just like the way she did. So she clocks really quickly. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Aunt Tribulation is not Aunt Tribulation. <laughs> yeah. That signpost as soon as we see her wearing sunglasses in the bed, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's clearly not. Penitence is like, oh, you look like way different to how you used to. And she's like, yeah, well, I've aged. No, we all <laughs> yeah. Tribulation is awful to them, but is also pretending to be bedbound and really ill. Yeah. And but is ordering them around. So Dido is really quickly like, cool, right, well, you can't have your cake and eat it. So she's like, you'll go without supper. And she's like, well, if I go without supper, so will you, because you can't get out of bed. (laughs) (laughs) When the applesauce was made, she took a saucer full up to Aunt Tribulation with the cap ribbon ostentatiously stuck like an ornament at the side of the dish. I guess this is yours, Auntie Trib, she remarked innocently. I can't think how it come to be lying on the floor downstairs because you haven't been down, have you? <laughs> Aunt Tribulation took this very much amiss. Impertinent girl, don't speak to me in that way. Apologise immediately. Why should I? Dido said reasonably. You ain't been extra polite to us. You shall be shut up in the attic till you learn better manners. Tally-ho, I'm agreeable, said Dido. I can just about do with a nap after all that hoeing. <laughs> And it's just, you know what I mean? She's just absolutely just clocks her straight away. I remember hearing an obituary programme on Radio 4 when Joan Aiken died, someone saying that without Dido, there probably wouldn't have been Lyra. Yeah. Right, that makes so much sense, yeah. I mean, it's it's very different. Lyra is always surrounded by protectors in um, Northern Lights. And Dido in most of the books, is either on her own or with adults who we don't always, we're not always sure they have their best interests at heart. Yeah, she, she's, she is a, a marvellous character. And for a character that is so kind of forthright and so kind of brave, throughout the novels, uh, her character does develop. And in particular, in the later books, there are hints around her sexuality relatively early on in children's fantasy fiction i'm assuming you mean not straight yeah for it to be of no yeah yeah she does have a really really strong feelings towards simon her friend Mm. who she thinks is dead in Mm. his first book but there's also um she meets a woman character that she also kind of is like Mm, yeah what's what's all this about and well you know most girls my age get married i'm not Mm. really sure it's all very introspective but it's there it's so exciting i get so excited by bi rep Mm. oh god yeah yeah you don't you know never see it in things intentionally being queered bi Mm. rep is so rare it sort of feels like there's an obvious way in which it could go which is like obviously nate and Dido develop feelings for each other. Mm. It doesn't le- it doesn't go there at all, which I was no. because I was sort of in the back of my head waiting for yeah. that to happen. No, they're just, it just friends. It doesn't even kind mm. of like remotely go there, which was really, really satisfying. Oh, mm. that's great. I yeah, I I hadn't clocked yeah. the Lyra connection, but now you mention it, like Lyra is like a carbon copy, right? Like the way mm. the dialect is handled and everything. Well, it's interesting that Joan Aiken decided to kill Dido off in book yeah, two. Yeah, and from, I, I mean, again, I haven't read the book, from, <laughs> but from reading, like, synopses, it sounds like, like, she properly kills her off. No, she meant like, to kill her, and then her audience yeah. is like, <laughs> yeah, tell us more about Dido! Tell us more about Dido! Yeah. yeah. And then she takes on a life of her own and takes over the book series. Oh, that's so cool that she's, I mean, maybe bye. Probably. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Oh, I like her even more now. Mm. So yes, that that confirms it then. As hilarious as the uh, as the talking bird is, Dido is my favourite. Um, but I think we should talk about Captain Casket as well because he's a really interesting yeah. character. Do you want to yeah. take the lead on that, Ali? Yeah, I I, I mean I hadn't. My husband is um, a Quaker, and I have right. a lot of Quaker friends. And so when I was rereading this, I was like, oh. I'd totally forgotten that that Captain Cusket was a Quaker. And so I put it on Facebook and a load of my Quaker friends were like, yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, While we were growing up as Quakers, 
we read this book and we're like, yes, it's a Quaker, even oh. if it is an old man with a beard. He does use plain speak. He uses the these and nows, um, yeah. which was a feature of OG Quakerism. Because Quakers had to be merchants, they had to be you know, tradespeople, craftspeople. Is this because they weren't allowed to own land or something? In, in Britain, they were not allowed also to go to university or be, join any profession because they had to swear allegiance because all of the, the universities were Church of England until mm, mm, the mid-1900s. And Quakers won't swear, for one thing. They will affirm, but they will not swear oaths of allegiance or anything like that. Right. And secondly, because they also will not say that they believe in the Articles of the Church of England, because they don't. They were the first denomination who did same-sex marriage. They were very pro-abolition as well, weren't they, in the US? Abolition of slavery. Yeah, and also um, led a lot of the protests again in the in Britain against wearing of cotton and eating sugar mm-hmm. because those were the products of the slave trade. Yeah. So I mean, obviously they weren't that bothered about slaughtering whales, but yeah. But when you're barred from an education, you have to get a trade. You have to get a trade. You know. Yeah, you have to do something. Yeah. Shall we go on from there to the general setting of the whaling ship? Because I think that's amazing as an o- a place to open. Do you want to talk about that, Matt? Yeah. Um, come back round to it as well. I definitely want to talk more about how Captain Casket's in love with this whale. But yeah, yes. the, the, set- <laughs> the setting of the whaling ship. I wonder whether there's a bit we can read just right from the beginning. Because for me, it was just like, I, I mean, I struggle often to get stuck into a book it's a Mm. weird dichotomy like i love reading but it takes me a while to get in and this one had me sort of sucked in really quickly because i think Mm. it's just the setting draws you in really nicely now to dido's amazement while every timber of the ship seemed to strain and strive the body of the whale slowly began turning over in the water as the men wound the windlass handle and pulled on the rope attached to the hook while the whale turned the cutters on the hanging plank skillfully sliced around its body so that the blubber, or skin, was peeled off in a spiral like orange peel. When there were a considerable length of this great blubber strip had been drawn up on the hook, sections of it as large as blankets were cut clear by the men on deck and lowered through a forward hatchway. Like, it's, mm. it's really visceral as well about the whale hunting, which I appreciate. It's not really... Doesn't shy away no, from it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of beautiful, like yeah, it's horrific. I do, I find it beautiful. But it's the work and it's like when you read if you read on from that section, it's like the black smoke everywhere mm. and they boil this blubber down to whale oil. Can I can I bring in a little bit about the dialogue? That yeah, that yeah. John Aiken's yeah. dialogue, because I find that absolutely fascinating. So Dido has heard penitents crying in the jam closet of uh, of the ship which is where she's living she hears a voice saying who's there it's me dido twite who are you no reply dead silence from beyond the door dido tried again come on do say summer i ain't a going to bite you why are you shut in no answer Troopus, Dido sighed to herself. This is a rum brig, a known state. Pink whales and spooky voices. Don't I just wish I was at home with Simon? And that, that kind of, the, the language might yeah. not be familiar to child readers. So like, they're not going to know what Troopus means. Hmm. Um, they're not going to know what rum brig means. But you can gather it, you can get yeah. it from the liveliness of the language and the way that Dido talks in very short sentences, and very short, or short exclamations, I should say. She doesn't have long, rambling sentences, but and dutiful when she does start talking, um, has much more kind of grammatical language. Her sentences are longer, and that the yeah. kind of the rhythm of of that dialogue mm. is is beautiful, and I can't understand why more of these books have never been dramatised. They're Mm. just... And you can't even get them as audiobooks. 
No, I know. I was thinking as I was reading it, it'd be a great audiobook. On that note, can we get you back to do the voices for every episode? (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going into the spoilery bit of the podcast, everyone. We can't go any further without spoiling a little. Cool. So, yeah, for the non spoilery bit, Captain Casket spends all his time chasing around a pink whale. Now, if you're leaving us at this point, enjoy the book. Um, we hope you've enjoyed us chatting about the characters. They're wonderful. Um, Come back when you've read it. This yeah. book has such a bizarre ending. Uh, from this point, there be spoilers. Do we need to explain like the, the alternate history bit first? Sure. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, go for it. So in these books... There is an alternate history of the British monarchy by which there would still be a Stuart king on the throne in 1820. And the Hanoverians, who were actually on the throne in 1820, in these stories are like weird, fringy terrorists who want to assassinate King James III and put their own King George in his stead. Whilst being like the cornerstone of the whole alternate history world, it sort of doesn't matter like it's quite interesting but like what matters (laughs) is that there's some people who are not the king who are trying to overthrow the king we promised you starlight barking-esque ridiculous plot here and so far we've just talked about boring old kings so the headline here is that we have in 1820 a mad german scientist has built a a cannon which operates as an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is specifically targeting a cannonball from the island of Nantucket over the Atlantic to specifically hit St. James's Palace in London and nothing nothing else. else. (laughs) Um, Which is a problem which, (laughs) which they decide to solve by harnessing said gun with a two mile length of rope to the pink whale that we've discussed and having the whale drag the gun over a cliff into the Atlantic. <laughs> well, one of the things I love about the the, uh, the resolving of the plot is that they try and tell the mayor about it. Yeah. Where Dido, Dido and, and um, Penitence and Nate, they're trying to get the mayor interested in there and they're like, eh, we don't care about kings here. I know. <laughs> in the US. The president's good enough for us. Bothered about that. Let, let, them, let them make their giant telescope or whatever it is they're making which is and quite then, interesting in terms of like american isolationism yes but they... when they explain that the back <laughs> blast from the gun is gonna push nantucket right up to atlantic, atlantic city. city new jersey <laughs> and, and it's like we're not having that like i think at one point one of them says oh yeah well i suppose the moorings of the island must be loose because it's so sandy and you go <laughs> yes. yeah and i sort of went oh yeah I go, no no that's not how islands work it's like, and then like they mention they do mention oh my god imagine the tidal waves that are going to engulf new york so you start to think okay so there's some grounding reality here and obviously they're going to be really worried yeah, yeah, that yeah. like this tidal wave is going to take over new york no not at all not bothered the mayor is much more concerned that they're going to have to spend their time being close to New York. <laughs> this like hive of villainy, the like. And then they explain to Professor Bredno, who is German or Prussian, I guess. Like he's sort of the trope of the amoral scientist who just loves his invention yeah. because it's possible. He's so chuffed. He's like, "Yeah, I've made a gun that can hit this building from the other <laughs> and he's side like, of the world." Super bang, super loud bang, yeah. <laughs> And like at one at one point, because when they're explaining the problem of it being kicked back into New York, he's like, "It took some time to get across to the professor that there was already the sort of king he preferred on the English throne, and therefore no need to shoot anyone off it." In the end, he was convinced, but greatly disappointed. Firing at Zon, at Mun, at Stero. The German in this is really bad, by the way. I speak German. This is not German. No, it's not. No, bread, no, that just wouldn't do. It would sink us. We'd go right under the water. Have a bit of sense, can't you? Poor Professor Bredno sighed heavily and stumped away from the council down to the edge of the waves, where he stood skipping stones and gazing mournfully at Rosie. So what does he mean in that? Because I got confused because I didn't... I think he meant shooting at the sun, the moon and the stars. Could we just shoot it up? Oh, right. Can we just, like, can can we we shoot something? Like, (laughs) can we blow up the sun? Brilliant. (laughs)
It does get quite scary, like Dido back at the house explaining to Nate what's happened and then turns around and she's been overheard by fake Aunt Tribulation, Mm. uh, Mr. Slycop and his sister, Miss Slycop, trap her and Nate in a sack and and go and stow them up at the lighthouse and are basically discussing when it's going to be best to throw them over the cliff into the sea, Mm. which has been complicated slightly because this pink whaler showed up, (laughs) who it now turns out... She's in love with Captain... (laughs) So this whale that the captain's been chasing around the world the whole time actually is in love with the captain too. Yes! So she's off the coast because she's like for some reason knows the captain is there and is like frolicking and dancing about, like rolling on her belly like a cat. So people are all lining the cliffs to watch this like crazy pink whale. And it's really inconvenient when you're trying to do three murders. Yeah, (laughs) like we can't throw anyone off the cliff. We can't like receive a delivery of cannonballs. Slight digression, uh, which is for um, Pat Marriott's illustrations. And they are so dynamic and so incredible. I really love them, but I particularly like uh, the one of the whale <laughs> kind of greeting everybody on, on the me... cliffs. Oh, amazing. Yeah. We'll take a picture of that and post it on social media. That is an amazing drawing. Yeah, I mean... She's that... just like, do you know when dogs are showing off in the park and like some older dog owners go, oh, she's such a tart. That's Rosie the whale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, so we end up with this amazing final set piece of Mrs. Slycarp on the gun, preparing to fire it with matches that are wet. Um, so she's stood on the gun while it's then being ripped out to sea by a whale. And she's balancing on the barrel, like with her matches. It's so villain like. But then she has a knife and she starts running up the barrel to, like, get to the rope. So she's going to cut yeah. the rope off. Yeah. And um, I, f- I think one penitence goes, oh, she'll never manage that. And Dido's like, she might like. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't. And it falls off the cliff. And then it's kind of, it's very, it's a very abrupt ending. We're sort of given no time to consider whether we care about the villain falling off the cliff. We assume that, that she's died. But of course you could bring her back for a later book if you wanted to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she could be resurrected. The flaw in the whole plan with the whale is that the whale loves the captain so much, but they need the whale to swim out to sea away from the captain. Ooh. This whale bolts, right? And then they're talking about the whale like coming back to forgive them. Ooh. I reckon they jabbed that whale with a harpoon. <gasps> Do you not reckon? Controversial. I don't don't think it's in there, but I think it's the bit of the plan none of them have thought about when they like get out there and it's like, cool, it's roped up, we've felt the two tugs, off you go, whale. Ah, how do we make the whale go? I think they'd jab it with a harpoon. You might be right. I think you're right, Matt. I think you're right. Yeah, right. Also, why has the whale been running away from the captain the whole time? Oh, no, she's been trying to entice him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chase me, chase me. Exactly. <laughs> Should we do scariometer? Hmm. So, Ali, we have a scariometer. It goes from one not scary at all to ten super, super scary. And we rate all our chapter books. Hmm. I'm going to go with five. I think there's mild peril. Mild peril, mild mm. threat. Hmm. I mean, there is adults hitting children, mm. which I think is much more shocking now than it was even when it was written. Mm. Yeah. But I think you take that in with the historical, with the, you know, the olden days vibe. I think yeah. children know that about the past and it's not so shocking in this setting as it would be in a modern day book. Yes, I agree. I think there is that historical distance that mm. makes some parts of it really yeah. helps mm. I mean you know they are about to be thrown off a cliff yeah that? I, I think it's the, the threat from Miss Slycott yeah. makes it because particularly because she is a woman and she's posing as a relative so she's actually someone who is supposed to be a safe adult yeah but really isn't I think five's about right are we ready to move on to our picture book yeah let's let's move on 
Um, so yes, so our picture book is Pegany Poe by Andrea Davis Pinkney and Brian Pinkney. And uh, yeah, Brian Pinkney is actually the son of Jerry Pinkney, who wrote and illustrated the version of The Little Mermaid that we covered in our Mermaids episode a few months ago. So there's a nice link there. So Pegany Poe is, again, it's about whaling. It's a picture book for younger readers, although it's quite a wordy picture book. Um, so maybe as a read two or slightly... Later primary school, I'd say. Yeah. It's basically Pinocchio meets Moby Dick. So <laughs> there's a sailor who has a feud with a whale and gets his leg bitten off. And then he makes a son out of wood and tells this story of the whale and says, no one can catch it. And this Wood's son says, I ain't nobody, and sets off around the world and fights this whale. He gets, like, villagers to fill its mouth with carts and tractors. It's, it's all very, very odd. Um, but we sort of see lots of the world and we hear lots of information about whaling. And eventually he manages to beach and kill the whale. So we've got all that going on. And then it, it's also very heavily sort of goes into detail on the role of black people and African-Americans in the whaling yeah. industry. And there's sort of a little kind of completely non-fiction blurb on the last page, which is sort of talked about uh, seafaring as the equaliser of all men. Yeah. And there was so much emphasis on the sea being so dangerous and you just have to be strong enough to not die and to do the job that it doesn't matter what race you are. Yeah, white men worked alongside free black men and Pacific Islanders on whaling ships in a time when men of different races like that wouldn't have worked together in other workplaces at the time in the US. Um, yeah, so that it, it, that's that's the book. I thought it was a, a bit of an odd one. It's sort of it's lovely. The pictures are gorgeous. It is sort of that sort of caught between picture book and almost middle grade in how wordy it is and how in depth the story goes. But yeah, so I'm I'm kind of, I think it's beautiful and odd, and I'm vaguely on the fence. What do you guys think? I loved it, and one of the reasons I loved it, it's the language. Mm. Right. The first sentence is, ever heard of Peggy Poe? Yeah, read on a bit, I think, because I really want to show that as well, that it feels a lot like spoken language. It feels like a story that's been taken from an oral tradition and transcribed. Ever heard the story of Peggy Poe? It's a story that begins with a whale, ends with a whale, and has a whole lot of whale in its middle. It, it's colloquial yeah. language. It's um, and it's a lovely rhythm. For a child hmm. who lived on the island of yeah, Nantucket or in Massachusetts, this is your language. It would be incredibly embracing and. Um, and really validating, and I love it. It's also got touches of African-American vernacular, Ooh, as yeah. well, exactly. I think is really important yeah. because black children go to school in the US and get told that they talk wrong. Yes, as they do in the UK, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and this, you know, is how people actually talk in those communities, and mm. I think that's really cool. I don't really think it's one for children to read on their own, but I think it's a great one to perform, like we were talking about last month, mm. about the picture book being a performance piece. Yes. Um, I went to Seven Stories Museum. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's free entrance now. If you can get yourself up here and get in for free. Oh, amazing. They, they have story times every hour on the hour. And these wonderful actors, all costumed up, perform mm. three or four picture books to an audience of, like, zero to seven-year-olds, I guess. And they've got them all off by heart so that they can read them, you know, with the book facing out and they perform them. And I was thinking, this is exactly the kind of book that'd be great for that. Mm. Like, as a performance piece or it feels like a story you tell around the fire in this Mm. really sort of chatty way where, you know, you've got little rhetorical questions in there. And do you know what happened next? Have you heard the story of Pegany Mm. Poe? I really like that in Andrea Davis Pinkney's style of writing. I've seen some critiques of this book that say that maybe the pictures and the style of writing aren't pitched at the same age of child, maybe? No, I don't agree. I don't agree. (laughs) The whole thing works together as a work of art um, or as a cultural object is is beautiful. I have a bit of an obsession with with fonts, but this is set in pubs, which is not 
a font that I would be expecting to see in a picture book. So it's slightly serifed, but the space between the letters is and the, the space between the lines is so comfortable for me to read. Um, as a person who has trouble with serifed fonts, often they, they walk around the page for me. They look like ants. But this is, is beautiful because it's spacing around it. So even the font is, is chosen to work so well because it looks slightly old. It's not a modern looking font, but it's, it's, I think it's lovely. Well, this one's set in 1846, right? Mm. So it's set slightly after Nightbirds in Nantucket. And it feels, yeah, very set in its time. I mean, what you're saying about the font as well, every page is a double page spread. Mm. And you can really tell that Andrea Davis Pinkney and Brian Pinkney really collaborated on this because on every big drawing, he's left a lovely piece of blank space for the text to go so that it doesn't feel crowded at all. Um, They're a husband and wife team, by the way, for people who didn't Mm. know, like the Albergs. Andrea Davis Pinkney and Brian Pinkney are married and they've done lots of picture books together. I, I do really like this one. Shall we talk a little bit about Brian Pinkney's art style? The colour scheme of this book is kind of pink and blue mm. and I think that comes from a bit... Um, the father of Pegney Poe is inspired by the Northern Lights to mm. carve his son out of the piece of driftwood that he was rescued by when um, Cetus ate his leg. Uh, and then you've always got a little bit of pink or a little bit of blue in the background. Mm. And then the lines, it looks like, yeah, paintbrush and pen. The lines are quite fat and quite mm. visible. Like You can often see the brush strokes. And then there's lots of curves. There's hardly any straight lines in this book. Yeah. And I think it works because the whale is really curvy. And then the bodies of the humans are really curvy. And then boats and ships are all curves as well. It's just yeah. like, I, I think the art is really gorgeous. I love the play of like the light and dark as well inside the boat and the way that the black skin of the characters looks luminous rather than dark. It's set off against the darkness of the ship behind, but the skin shines. I had to say something about like Pegany Poe's skin as well. Galleon sanded the boy smooth and gave him a beautiful dark complexion with a stain made of pico tea. That that was a desired trait for him to be dark-skinned and that was a beautiful trait um i really really like that and pegany poe kind of sits a little bit rigidly to start with in the first few illustrations where you see him sitting on his dad's lap it's like he's still made of wood yes but then when he takes to the sea and you know he's not like a real boy who needs to breathe he can swim forever he's got all this you know dynamic movement in his limbs and his his knees are so round and the top of his head is so round. He doesn't appear to have elbow joints No, in a lot of it. I mean, there are pictures where he has his arm bent, but there's more of a curve. No, but they're sort of bent in a kind of curve. Yeah, it's lovely. I also really like the cover. I like the face of the whale because it's not cute. It's not anthropomorphic. But it does actually look friendly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's quite characterful. Yeah. yeah. And that was something else I wanted to talk about in this book is the sort of like predator-prey relationship between Pegany Poe and Cetus the Whale in that it's quite a... It feels almost quite a sacred thing. It doesn't feel... I mean, of course it's exploitative. Of course whaling ships were extracting value and materials from whales and that. But there's also a lot of respect between... Pegany Poe and Cetus, almost as if they're playing a game or doing a dance. In fact, in some places they are dancing with each other. And when Pegany Poe finally overcomes the whale, he sings him a song to send him off and says, you were a good adversary. You know, you did really well. And, you know, I, I think that's very interesting. I think it can be quite uncomfortable for parents reading books to children now. I saw a review from a vegan mum who had read this to her son, and her son had loved it, and she'd felt very uncomfortable. And I think for people who are really sensitive to the killing of animals and the exploitation of animals, this is hard, but this is also history, and it's real, and it happened, and these were people's lives. And I don't want to just dismiss everybody who ever worked on a whale ship as like a murderer, you know? Hearing it read aloud does make a lot more sense. Mm. 
of the language. I, I still think the plot jumps around a little. I found it quite difficult to follow, and I wonder how easy it would be to follow for a kid. It feels very much like a read to rather than a read yourself. I think if I was still teaching in schools, I would probably use this book as as the basis of some work that yeah. we were doing. We would revisit it several times. What I would probably use it for mostly would be um, as a resource for art teaching. I want to read a little bit aloud here from the moment that he's coming into the world. First he carved the head with ears, nose and a chin. Then came the eyes set deep in the boy's face. When he carved the child's lips, they parted right away and the boy spoke. The rest of me, he said, bring on the rest of me. Galleon worked and worked. Hurry, shouted the boy. I want to be. I love him. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yes, give me life. I, I'm coming right now. I feel like so much agency. in it. Obviously, it's his father's idea and it's maybe the Northern Lights' idea. But that as soon as he has lips to speak, off he goes. So. But it feels like Pinocchio's got... Geppetto and the whale as well. You know, there's the whale yeah. connection too and the sea connection as well. It feels, to me, more related to Pinocchio than maybe to Moby Dick. I mean, I don't Ooh. like Moby Dick either, to be honest. But um, I also feel like it's connected a little bit to Br'er Rabbit in the sort Ooh. of the little, small, but mighty and clever creature defeating the big, powerful, but maybe stupid and slow creature Yes. Feels very much in that tradition as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for introducing me to this book because it's not one I would have encountered naturally, but it's definitely one I'm going to be sharing with my, my students. Um, oh, great. Uh, I'm but really they'll, they'll enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Ali, thank you so much for coming on. You've been a real blast, and thank you for recommending Nightbirds on Nantucket. Oh, you're welcome. And yeah, do, do enjoy the rest of them. I will. I will. Uh, Do you want to plug your stuff while we're here? Oh yeah. So my uh, my podcast is called Fantasy Book Swap. You can find it on most of your podcast emporiums. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, and you can also find me on Instagram at Fantasy Book Swap. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. We're very much looking looking forward to coming over to your place as well yeah definitely. Um, having a chat about some lovely books there too Plug. so we're bringing in slaves of the mastery which is the follow-on to the wind singer which we both loved as a kid and covered on here last september ali you are matching that with city of the play cost by my soul looking forward to that so that was episode 33 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid, or love now as a kid, let us know or ask a grown up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com. Catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod or on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, Kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even the trunch ball. <laughs>